Good morning, and uh, I'm glad to be with you via whatever, however you're connecting with this. I, Peter's sitting here in front of me, I don't know if you can see that on the video, um, and I, I was struck as you were praying, because it, it connects a little bit with how we're going to talk this morning about the, when you said, I haven't thought of it before, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, but to some of the sheep, your rod and your staff hurt me. <laughs> the same rod and staff that is painful and is also the ones that comfort us, and not being too, too deep and mystical here, uh, I, I want to talk about the cross and especially what's called the last seven words. I know that seems out of sequence that, you know, hey, aren't we past Easter and all that and put away all our Easter decorations? Well, yes and no. I, um, I don't get to sort of preach in always exactly the, the right spots for the things I want to talk about. <laughs> and there's never a time in which we're not experiencing Easter, for sure. Every week when we have our communion, that is Easter. Um, and so I don't feel bad about that necessarily. Um, but back to what I was saying about the, the prayer from Psalm 23 is it's, the cross is like that. To some, it is the most tender. It, it is filled with unbelievable beauty and yet it's also ex the most horrible and ugly. It's somehow the, those pictures marry and, and, and come together. I'll say up front what brought me to want to have this conversation, and then what I'd like to do is, is actually just sort of walk through these, these seven last words, even though they're actually sort of phrases, and I'm going to add to because Jesus is not the only one using his voice on this horrible Friday that becomes the Good Friday. Um, and then as we do that, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to have some questions. My suggestion would be, if you wanted, and you're, you know, you're with a small group of people, or even just your family or your significant other, you may want to just for a moment hit pause and maybe ask each other this question that I'm going to be asking. There's a, there's a few people here in the audience. I may let you guys, if you want to shout something out, I'll make sure everybody can hear it real quickly. Um, and so that's going to be our feel today. I hope it can feel intimate, even though there might be thousands of people who are, who are watching this. Um, interesting verse that prefaces some of what I'm going to talk about is from the Apostle Paul. In Paul in Galatians 4, he says that Jesus appeared in human form at exactly the right moment in the fullness of time, and you get this idea that this is the perfect intersection, the, the best spot where he could jump into the world. And there's lots of reasons probably for that. But I think one of the reasons this was the perfect time was because of the, the prevailing method of execution at this time. That is one of the reasons that all the, all the things that conspired to make this a good time, the fullness of time, and one of those is this method of execution. Not going into too much detail right now, but I want to remind you of what actually killed a person in an execution. 
And what killed them was not like what I thought as a child or as a teenager, which I assumed was blood loss. Part of the science that the Romans had come up with was how to pin somebody with nails to a cross with the least amount of blood loss. Not that there wouldn't be blood loss, but that's not what's going to kill them. What will kill them and what makes it last so long and is so excruciating, and by the way, the word excruciating, I think in Latin, has something to do with out of the cross comes this. What makes it excruciating is that you can't ever catch your breath. That in order to breathe, when, when you hang like this, you, you, you can inhale on the way down, but you can't fully exhale unless you were to somehow pull with your arms and push with your legs up to release your diaphragm, and then you can expel that breath. And then you're, because you're weak, you have to you go back down and you hold yourself up as long as you can. And they called that, this action, the pumping of the cross. And it was only till a couple of weeks ago when I was thinking through these conversations happening on the cross that it dawned on me that to be able to speak was not like me and I had pictured on the cross two people, you know, they're just hanging there um, and they're just having conversation. Even the movies that we've seen, they're, they're having conversation in a sense in a normal way, but that's not for each word, it would cost them unbelievable pain and agony and intention. So it was with incredible intention that they would pull and push themselves up and expel those words. So as I'm repeating these words, if you can, try to reimagine each time what it cost with a dying breath to have said, what needs to be said. And lastly, again, as the story of God is, is always multifaceted, that this is a story of what is happening to Jesus. And one, one layer of that story is God the Father is, is acting upon God the Son. But we are Trinitarians and we do not divide them out. They are not the same, but they are the same. They are each their own, and yet they are one. And so what is happening to Jesus is happening by Jesus. So Jesus is not on in the other side of the story, he is not only being acted upon, but he is in a weird way acting upon himself. But it's okay to not be able to figure that out, to see that the story is both one happening to him and one in which he is participating. All right, that's all the free stuff for today. That's, I'm just trying to give a little preference. And um, again, pause at any time and you can talk about these kinds of things. What a gift you have. Luke 23 32, um, that's where I'll begin. And I will go in what's called, the, it's kind of the traditional order. It, it, we don't know for sure what order, but um, we'll use that traditional order of the last words. Beginning in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. When does stupidity become an, an access to forgiveness? And, and being blunt, how, how can Jesus say they don't know what they're doing when they describe exactly what they're doing? Like, what didn't they know they were doing? Did they not realize that when you pin somebody to the cross, you're going to inflict on them the most unmerciful and excruciating pain? Did they not realize that they were, the, the horror of mocking somebody who is dying like that, that they were stealing his clothes? What didn't they understand? And why would that be the criteria for the Father to forgive them? Here's my guess. It isn't that they didn't know what their actions were, but like all humans, they were blinded to the consequences of those actions. Did Adam know that he would have to leave the garden? Did David know that his infatuation with Bathsheba would lead to murder? Did you know when you had too much, you fill in the blank, that it would make you sick, hungover, or depressed? Father, forgive them. They don't know how bad this is. They don't know. They don't know how much trouble they are in. And I don't mean because of some action. But they don't really, really, really know what it's like to not be with you. My question, if you wanted to pause, would be this. Looking back in your life, what is something you did that you did not know? I, I believe this, forgive them, for they, they do not know what they do. They do not know that they are both, in one sense, accelerating their own depravity beat in the same moment they are releasing the only the only way in which they can be released from that depravity they do not know what they do they do not know that they are my gift jesus can say father 
these men who injure me are my gift. Without them, I can't give to the world the thing that I long to give to the world. One of the criminals, continuing in our reading, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, this is beginning in verse 39, are you not the Christ? Well, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A couple of observations. A life of blame will always result in a life of bitterness. A life of blame always leads to a life of bitterness. I'm sure there's lots we could say about friend number one. But it feels to me that with his dying breath, as he exerts unbelievable effort and endures incredible pain, he spews bitterness. And our second friend will help us, help us once again understand this idea of what repentance might mean. I'll repeat what I've repeated many times. Repentance is not a promise that you will try harder and do better in the future. In fact, this man has no future. Based on what some people, in the way in which maybe they unknowingly express the gospel, that it is dependent that I can be the one who judges what a changed life looks like, this guy has no hope then. Because he's, he's not going to be able to... He's not going to have that opportunity. But that's not what repentance is. Here's what I think. I think repentance, in one sense, is taking responsibility. I, I, I did bad. I was wrong. And here's the twist. And there's nothing I can do to fix it. Repentance is not, I screwed up, I did wrong, and I'm going to make this right. You can never make it right. I'm not saying you couldn't repay something. I'm not saying you may not be prompted to go apologize. You can never make it right. But Jesus can. Repentance is, I can't. I, I screwed up, and I can't do this. Repentance is the changing of my mind that says, only you, Jesus. Only you. What a beautiful moment we see when I think this man is expressing with his dying breath some beautiful reality he had never seen before. Oh my gosh, you can save me. Will you rescue me, Jesus?
And Jesus says, of course. Of course I'll rescue you. A couple of other notes. Um, it's never too late, is it? It's never too late. Only the devil would whisper in your ear the lie that says, you're too far gone. No story in the Bible says, you're too far gone. My discussion question for you to ponder together is what is something you cannot fix? This takes some real vulnerability and transparency, but what is something in your life you cannot fix? Only Jesus can. Always for me, the same thing comes to mind. It is, it is my parenting mistakes, of which I have legions. I can't fix those. But Jesus can. Jesus can, can do the alchemy of taking the pain I cause my children and using that in some way to produce for them character qualities that are, in fact, positive. He can, he can take the pain I cause them, and that pain causes them to seek help. And I can be forgiven. It's hard for me to want to, to receive forgiveness. What I want to do is try to buy them something or try to make it up to them. And I can't. I can pay for therapy. I'm going to have to keep going. Obviously, there's a lot to cover here, so I'm moving to John 19 now. And again, keep picturing the excruciating pain. Each word is going to cost him. So in John, excuse me, John 19, 26, um, I should have marked all of these. And these letters are very small. Oh, here it is. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Um, there is, they say, in our world today, one of the high causes of death that's hard to document, but they believe is such a contributor, is the epidemic of loneliness, the isolation of, of, of being disconnected. It is, as a side point in this moment in history, a great concern. It's a great concern that people who are already lonely are now isolating on top of that. And I, I believe that Jesus on the cross is being both incredibly practical. He's expressing, we'll see in a moment, true and pure humanity. And, but he's also d demonstrating how life really does work. In every moment, it is the gospel. And 
one of the realities of being his child is that I'm no longer alone. I have family. I'm not expected to live alone. I've shared this before. I'll share it again real quickly. What drew, drew me to Christ, I, I couldn't quite figure out all the theology, but I knew I was lonely and I wanted to belong. And I wanted to belong to a family. About 14 years ago now, after, now it's been about three years, but for 11 years I had helped start a church, and, and for 11 years that was my entire family. Like, that was my, my social, spiritual, it was my world. And when suddenly having to leave that, I, one of the things I did not anticipate was the loneliness that I was going to experience. I wonder, I've often, from in my life, I've always wondered about and been interested in church and church metrics and what is a good church and what's a bad church. And there's millions of books and conferences you can go to. But I, I know that there's and should be a lot of dialogue around what is a growing church. And like maybe you, and I don't think growing is only demonstrated by numbers. I don't think you, a growing church is always one that is having some kind of rapid numerical growth. But I, I, I wonder if this would be an interesting metric and one that might be worth trying to test. Since coming to be connected with our church family, the sanctuary, wherever you may be in the world, are you beginning to experience less loneliness? Are you feeling that Jesus is putting you together with somebody? The, the, much of the New Testament written after this is stories about how we are connected. We cannot separate from each other. It's only a myth that, that the body can live in different, you know, the arm can live over here and a leg can live over here. They have to be symbiotic, but this is my observation. So maybe my question for you is, if you're going to talk about this, how do we help meet the epidemic of loneliness? How do we, like Jesus, practically put people together so they can practically take care of each other? They needed each other. John needed G Mary as much as Mary needed John. I'm going to switch over to Mark since this will be his only contribution to our conversation. Mark 15, almost the last chapter in Mark. Mark 15:34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a, even hearing it all these thousands of years later and not in his actual voice, but it still, it still conjures for us a, a darkness. Uh, 
again, he pumps the cross. He's becoming weaker and weaker. And he pushes in an unbelievable pain. He expresses on an exhale of limited breath. Where have you gone? Why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, where are you? The Bible says that we have a sympathetic high priest. It it says in the book of Hebrews, and in other places it's inferred, that, that there is no human experience which Jesus does not experience. I know for Jesus' followers, one of the one of the little untold realities is I have not met a follower of Jesus who has not experienced a deep, deep sense that God has left them, a fear that God has abandoned them. It's an existential fear. In other words, Jesus in that moment was not absent from the presence of God, but he He and his humanity or whatever, I don't know all the cosmology, but he could not be connected to God from his perspective. Sure, the Bible says, quoting Jesus, that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's a given. That's that's the reality. That's the theology. But that's not the existential experience of all of us. It is true, but it's not what's always felt. Now, maybe your experience is different, and I'm not, maybe I should be careful. I'm saying in my experience, I don't know of a brother or sister in Christ who has deep love for God, who has not also experienced a moment where they were sure God had left them, that God had abandoned them. I, I, I want to be careful because I think we've, made errors how we talk about feelings, but feelings are not necessarily the reality. They're real. Feelings are real. They shouldn't be dismissed. They shouldn't be pushed away. They shouldn't be ignored, but but it doesn't mean they're less important, but they're not reality. We learned after her death that Mother Teresa had kept a, a diary, and in that diary, I'll sum it up for you, was many, many pages of where is God? Where is God? Henry Nouwen, upon his death, we find uh, some of his writings. Where are you, God? Where are you? In your life, you maybe with great confidence are able to quote from Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you, but you will also have moments when you cannot existentially experience that he is there. I, I, um, I will confess, I don't necessarily have a dark night of the soul where I have this crisis moment that comes and then passes, like the night gives way to the sunrise. I have a lot of dark nights of the middle of the afternoon, I would say. Like, it's, it's, it's not like it completely destroys me. But it's just these moments where, is this really what, is this really what being his child is? 
John 19, 28. In your group, back to the question, maybe you want to share a moment where you have felt abandoned by God, or perhaps you want to share a moment where you felt his reappearance also in your life. John 19, 28. This is perhaps the most quoted of Jesus' words on the cross. It certainly is the most pregnant with unbelievable breadth and depth of meaning. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I'm sorry, I, I put things in the wrong order, but they, they connect, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So I'm, I'm going to read the next two parts together. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The first, I thirst. What story is behind that? Well, here's the story. Jesus was thirsty. And I think it's perhaps reasonable that he, he, his ability to speak was becoming extremely difficult. Because as you know, when you, when you are exerting, imagine the sweat coming off of them, the pain, the dehydration. This is just my very non-theological, I think he needed to wet his lips a little bit to be able to say what he wanted to say next. I could be wrong. I would say I place, if I somehow had to weight these statements, this is the statement that is the foundation of all what happened on the cross. This is the foundation of all that happened in Jesus' life. This is the summary, I believe, the, the climax of this story. It is the climax of the story that began in Genesis when, when we began to wonder how can we ever make this right? What can we do? What's going to happen? How can this, this breach, how this being cast from a garden, how do we ever get back to a garden? How do we ever, how is this ever going to get fixed? How is life ever going to be back? What sacrifice, what, what has to happen? And Jesus I could be so wrong, but Jesus wants to be sure you hear this. I'm thirsty. And even sour wine is at least wet. And he rises, pushing with his legs, pulling with his arms, and he expresses these three words. It is finished. It's finished. I'm going to pause just for a moment. So that here and you at home, just for a moment, keep asking yourself, what's finished? What will never again have to be done? 
never repeated. It's finished. While you can maybe now pause and you may want to speak uh, to your friends or however you may want to do that, I'm very quickly going to ask my friends here, what came to mind when I said, asked you to listen to what is finished? What is finished? Shame. Shame. Never again. Creation. Creation. Doubt. Doubt. Fear. I love that. For me, it, I have this sense that whatever it takes to be connected to God is not necessary. It's, it's finished. It's been done. Not that it's not necessary, but it's been done. I can't add to the story of being connected to God. And I mean that in a very simplistic, childish way. I can't be good to be connected to God because to be connected to God, it's finished. It's, it, it's not a story that we need to look at again in, in sense of redoing. My granddaughter, I, I think often that while she will never understand this, I understand. She can't concede that there will be nothing she can do in her life that will make me not want to be connected to her. There's no naughtiness, there's no distance. There's no hate on her part for me if that were to happen. There's nothing she can do ever that will make me not want to be connected and pursue her. That decision is finished. The last one um, is found in, in Luke. And again, we don't know the exact order, um, but this is how Luke ends it and how historically we have ended it. Um, verse 46, 2346. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I've done a lot of funerals. Probably not as many as, as Peter, but I've, I mean, I've done more than your average person, having been a pastor for all these years. And in a simplistic way, there's, I've noticed there's sort of two kinds of funeral songs, and they say a lot about a person. The first is the one that my grandmother requested, and many people have, by Frank Sinatra. Have you ever been to a funeral where they insisted that you sing, I did it my way? Yeah. yeah. There is something that is so appealing about that, and each time I cringe so deeply. There is no funeral song 
in my opinion, less appropriate, but is so honest in terms of that's exactly how people really believe it's supposed to go. That the high mark of your life, and it's really funny, they'll talk about what a screw up they were, but here's the redeeming part. At least they did it their way. At least they were consistent to the end. You couldn't change their mind. Let's have a toast to that. What is a preacher? What am I supposed to say? How do you, what do you do with that? Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. Or I can fight. I, I can pretend that I have this illusion of control. I can pretend that there is some, some value to at least never surrendering. I mean, would, would, is, is Custer's on his epitaph, is it supposed to say, well, at least I didn't surrender. The second is a song I love and other songs like this, and it tells me something about the person. The old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Not because of what I did, not because of how I lived my life even. It is well because of him. It is well, it is well with my soul. I, I wanted to have this conversation because I, I wanted to give the weight of, of importance that these words have when you picture once again that it, it is a, an act of almost death that they are spoken. And that's how valuable they are. And also to say that in a weird way, I'm moving towards my own epitaph. Like it or not, I'm writing the song that will be sung at my funeral. And I don't want my song to be, I did it my way, maybe thief number one, but I want my song to be, I couldn't do it my way. I was hopeless. But you did it all, and it's finished. Let's pray together. Lord, I more than anything hope that these words from our Lord Jesus on the cross and the words I've added to it would spur conversation and that the conversation would create connection. So I pray out into the, to this land of video or whatever, I pray that you give people the honesty to speak the truth. I pray you give them the, the courage to be vulnerable so that they can have the opportunity to be accepted and to be loved. Thank you for words of life, spoken in the moments of death. Amen. We've done communion a little bit differently since I've been doing the video ones. Uh, last week I invited Peter to um, do the communion, and this week I've asked him to do it with me. Um, so we're going to share this together. 
And I like that because it's a picture of how communion always goes. We're always, hopefully, sharing it together. I didn't think through the microphone. If there's an issue, guys, just let me know. I got the, I got the hand. Okay, you're okay. All right. So. Here, you, you're, you go around this side. Like this here? Yeah, because you're doing the bread, right? Okay. Because earlier when you said you would do the bread, you meant I would do the bread. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's good. So I think, do, who starts, me? I start oh, I first. Oh, no, so. I start I first. Mean, that's they, right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, <laughs> he took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now imagine, if you would, to them, this is um, metaphorical. Like they're, they're thinking, you know, this is a nice saying. They still did not comprehend that in a few hours this is not metaphorical but they will they will see his body being broken they will see the the flesh from his back completely shredded and they will see his face bleeding because they stuck thorns and pounded them into his head they will see that he they don't even quite recognize his face, that his body was not metaphorically broken. His body was physically broken, which is broken for you. Yeah, and then, Carl, I was thinking as you were, you were preaching about how they do communion so that they don't bleed. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, in the story, the, the next day they would see the soldier come up to his body and stick a spear in his side, mm. and a fountain would come out of his side, which is blood and, and, water. and water. And Jesus said that he'd make a, there's this river of living water, and the life is in the blood. And so mm. suddenly they would all of a sudden remember what he said at the supper too, when he said, this is the covenant, which is also called the new covenant, the eternal covenant, the covenant in my blood poured out for the uh, forgiveness of sins, that, that, that somehow that river comes out of that body broken and heals us, and the life is in the blood. So when you, mm. when you said that part about uh, what's finished, the first thing that actually came to my mind was, me, I'm finished, mm. like, because uh, his life becomes, becomes my life. So um, we invite you to take the bread and dip it in the cup or however you do it and partake so i'll serve you carl and then you serve me something okay. like that yeah. okay so we're not supposed to physically touch each other <laughs> but here you go this is the body of christ given to you brother and his blood body of christ broken for you and his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.
As soon as the uh, video ends, if you would like prayer, there'll be a Zoom, there'll be a number at the bottom that you can connect to, and there'll be somebody who would pray with you um, via Zoom. So that would be a nice connection, and that's a nice option to have. As you, um, as you walk out this, this virus road, here's some words to remember. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in, all, in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Amen.